You are listening to the IFH Podcast Network. For more amazing filmmaking and screenwriting podcasts, just go to ifhpodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, episode number 325. I love doing stunts. It's as simple as that. Gerard Butler. Broadcasting from a dark, windowless room in Hollywood, when we really should be working on that next draft. It's the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast, showing you the craft and business of screenwriting while teaching you how to make your screenplay bulletproof. And here's your host, Alex Ferrari. Welcome, welcome to another episode of the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast. I am your humble host, Alex Ferrari. Now, today's show is sponsored by Bulletproof Script Coverage. Now, unlike other script coverage services, Bulletproof Script Coverage actually focuses on the kind of project you are and the goals of the project you are. So we actually break it down by three categories, micro-budget, indie film market, and studio film. There's no reason to get coverage from a reader that's used to reading tentpole movies when your movie's going to be done for $100,000. And we wanted to focus on that at Bulletproof Script Coverage. Our readers have worked with Marvel Studios, CAA, WME, NBC, HBO, Disney, Scott Free, Warner Brothers, The Blacklist, and many, many more. So if you need your screenplay or TV script covered by professional readers, head on over to CoverMyScreenplay.com. Guys, you are in for a treat today. We have on the show legendary stuntman, stunt coordinator, fight choreographer, second unit director, and now filmmaker, J.J. Loco Perry. Now, J.J. has been in the game since the 70s. He has been in every major action movie, it seems, from the last three decades. He worked on the John Wick movies, the Fast and Furious movies, any big studio movie that you can think of. He has been on it. And we are here today to talk about not only his journey as a stuntman through the business and some amazing stories along the way working with the biggest movie stars in the world, biggest projects in the world, but about his new movie Day Shift for Netflix, which stars the Oscar winner and legend Jamie Foxx, as well as David Franco and the also legendary Snoop Doggy Dog. Now, because J.J. has been directing Second Unit for so long and directing action, it is he is one of the most technical directors I've ever spoken to. He knows his craft so well. It was Quentin Tarantino who said the best directors in history are action directors because they know how to tell a story visually. And J.J. definitely knows how to do that. I enjoyed Day Shift immensely. I can't wait for you guys to see it. But without any further ado, please enjoy my insane conversation with J.J. Loco Perry. I'd like to welcome to the show J.J. Perry. How you doing, J.J.? Good, my brother. How are you? I'm good, man. I'm good. Now, there is a, sometimes I see in your credits there's a, another name in between J.J. and Perry, which is Loco. Is, uh, is, that, is that true, sir? Look at that. Oh. <laughs> For people who are listening, he just stood up and showed me his tattoo of Loco on his stomach. I, Listen, before we even get started, brother, I've worked with a ton of stunt people over the, over the course of my career. I have yet to meet a stunt person who's not nuts in the best, most beautiful, loving way that word could be used. I've I've had this is what this is. This is this is the conversation with stunt people when I ever work with them on a set as a director. I need you to jump off that. Uh, I need you to jump off that, uh, that that building over there. He goes, can can it? Can can I go fly? Can I go fly floors? No, no, I just third third floor is fine. No, no, I could go, I could go ten floors. I can do ten floors. I could do fifteen if you want me to. And 
do you want me to be on fire? I could be on fire. I need it for my reel. Can I be on fire too? Can I like, can I work it? So it's, it's like, no matter what I ask, they were like, no, 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 that's not enough. We can, I could drive the car off the roof on fire, flip three times. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's kind of the, that's kind of the mentality, you know, like it's, we're always trying to go bigger, faster, stronger, you know, that's kind of the, the, where the, where the mindset is always trying to outdo what we did last time. You know, it's like anything else, you know, you, you want to step one step beyond what you did last time. You're always trying to, we're always trying to push the envelope. No, absolutely. And, and I've, and every, every stunt person I've ever worked with has been the utmost professional and it seems like they're nuts, but they're so calculated and so specific about what they're doing. So everyone stays safe, you know, and all that kind of stuff, because I mean, you know, the stuff that you guys do is, it's insane. And, and it, and it can't go wrong. And it's really, it's really amazing what you do. And you, man, all right, so let's take it, let's take it back, brother. How and why did you get into this insanity that is the film business? <laughs> so uh, I graduated from high school back in uh, 86 uh, out, of, out of Stafford, Texas. And I worked on two films that came through Houston. One was called Pray for Death. It was a Shokasugi film back when the Ninja Craze was out. And another yeah. one was called uh, They Still Call Me Bruce. It was like an action comedy. Oh, I, rem- I remember that movie, dude. It was an amazing Johnny, movie. Johnny Yoon, exactly the Korean guy, yeah. Korean actor. And um, so, you know, I, I'd already sworn in to go to join the army. So there was no getting out of that. And towards the end of my stint in the army, I out processed to um, to Fort Ord, California. I was that's where I was going to out process from. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was at Fort Ord, I was on the army taekwondo team uh, at the time. I was going down. I was competing all over California and all over you know, the U.S. and et cetera. And uh, I went down to L.A. a couple of times to compete. And some of the guys I was competing against were um, were stuntmen. And, you know, because I'd been stationed in Korea for a year, I was I had a leg up on them. You know, I was, you know, competing on a very high level at that time. And, but one of the guys uh, who's no longer with his name is Chris Carnell, was a dear friend of mine. He died in a motorcycle wreck a couple of years ago. But he, he we're the same size, same age. And I was like, where'd you get? He had nice shoes, nice car. And I was like, dude, what are you a drug dealer? There's no man. I'm a stuntman. And coming down from from Fort Ord, you know, like I came down and trained a few times about two weeks later, he said, hey, man, there's a big audition here for a movie called Lionheart. It was Van Damme's second yeah. movie. Yeah. So I took a three day pass, drove down and booked the job. But the problem was when I went back to ask my first sergeant if I could, you know, take three weeks off to do a movie. He was like, no, nah, you ain't doing no movie, boy. <laughs> you we got work to do. <laughs> We got army work to do, boy. So they called me Hollywood up until the time I out-processed. Um, and then I told them, you know, like I said, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do at that time. I figured I would go down to L.A. and give it a try. I didn't really know anyone except for Chris. And, and um, I figured, you know, I'm going to give it a try. And so I just drove down the five south, never made the left turn on the 10 to go back to Texas and um, thought I would probably fuck that up for sure and be back in the army at no time because I knew they'd be saving a seat at the table for me. But it just worked out and here we are 32 years later talking about my talking about my movie that i just directed which i can't believe so i I never expected any of this my brother i fumbled my way through all of it and i'm super grateful for every moment that i've had so what was so what was your first big break in the in as a as a stunt guy well so it kind of it broke down like this i didn't really the the first week i landed in la i I was answering phones at a Taekwondo school on Wilshire La Jolla, it's called Junshang Taekwondo. And there was a call for, they were looking for guys for the cross trainer Reebok commercial. Mm-hmm. The very first one for the Super Bowl at that time. Oh. And one of the guys that I 
she said, hey, I don't have my car. Can you give me a lift? One of the guys that was like an actor type dude that had an agent and whatever. So I drove him over there and it was in it was in West Hollywood. A park. He goes in. He's taking a while. So I put 50 cents in the meter. I go upstairs and the lady says, hey, did you put your name down on the. So I wrote down my name and the number of the Taekwondo school. And then I wrote down my friend's name and his agent's name. And I went in because the movie, the, the commercial was about, it was about uh, basic training. It was like called the Reebok cross trainer pumps, but it was like, they shave your head. And it was like an army thing. So I went in there. I was like, Hey, JJ, AK, five, four, one, one, zero, nine. You know, they were like, Oh shit. Who's this guy? You know, I just literally just got out of the army and I booked the book that job. So uh, that's how it started. And I, I didn't anticipate like when the, when the check started coming in the mailbox, oh. I was Oh. You know, you know, you make 750 bucks a month in the army. I almost start crying, you know, and and then, well, yeah, then forever. So for everybody listening, you were in a Super Bowl commercial. What was it? We're we talking about the early mid 80s. No, I'm talking about like 1990 for the so 1990. Yeah. Right. So you're so you're 1990 Super Bowl commercials. The money, the residuals off that. slot machine. It's insane. You're talking about tens of thousands of dollars in 1990. <laughs> Yep. Yep. That's true. And then, uh, then I started doubling, uh, I doubled Lorenzo Lamas a few times down on Renegade. We're yeah. down in San Diego. Then I doubled Russell Wong in a TV series called Banishing Sun that, uh, that I told you about Jeff Cariente earlier, a dear friend of ours. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. kind of how it started, you know, like uh, stunt work is networking and, you know, it's kind of like they're, they're always looking for the man or woman that's not scared to go big and it's safe. And they're not looking for the crazies. They're looking for the calculated, smart, you know, um, individuals who, who are ready to go big and have a strong physicality. And we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show, you know, having a background in Taekwondo and, and being in the military, like when, when I got out of the army, I didn't realize what I would be able to apply. Some of the skills I learned in the army was except for being a cop. But then I quickly realized that you know, the, the hard work and the work ethic of being in the army after the army, nothing else is really ever hard again, you know? So I got that out of the way pretty quick in life. So it was really easy for me to get up at five in the morning and do my road work and go out and meet people and do my thing. So yeah, that's how it all happened for me was those two TV shows got me going in that commercial. And, and here we are. So, but so there is, I mean, I think there is a stunt school now, but there was, was there anything like a stunt school or did you just learn on the job? Learned on the job. And I'll, I'll never forget my first car hit. You know, I had to do a, get hit by a car on Renegade. They wanted me to run, run into the middle of the street with a, with a, with a female stunt woman. And there's a briefcase in the middle of the street. And they want us to race to the briefcase. And then a, a, a Lincoln Continental hits us both. So I'm thinking to myself, you know, I don't, I don't want to seem like a, you know, like I don't know what I'm doing, but I also don't want to get killed or make a mistake and, and hurt uh, my, my, my counterpart. So I asked the stunt coordinator, I said, well, you know, what's the objective of this? He said, well, your objective is not to get underneath the car, bro. <laughs> so, <laughs> so ride, ride, get light on your feet, ride up the hood, get up into the windshield. And if he punches you through, just go all the way over. And if he doesn't just get, you know, get upside the car. And so what I did was I just got very aggressive and I, I, the car actually hits you, but I, in my mind, I was thinking I'm going to hit the car. And next thing I know it was light, it was dark, it was light, it was dark, it was light, it was dark. And boom, I was on the pavement. I was like, oh, that wasn't so bad. You know, so there it was. It's my first car hit. I, I, I got to ask you, man. I've always wanted to ask. A, I always wanted to ask a stunt guy this. What is it in the brain? There's something in, in your mind, in your brain that allows you to go, 
hey, that wasn't so bad. You just said it. I think that's absolutely horrific personally because that's that's, yeah. that's not in my DNA. So what is it? What is that thing that stunt people have that not only do they want to do it and enjoy doing it, but they want to continue to one up themselves and keep pushing themselves physically um, with the complexity of this stuff? But we haven't gotten into fight coordination yet, which we'll get yeah. into. But but just in stunts, there's something in the, the DNA of stunt people that I've, at least that I've experienced. What is that? I'd love to lo- hear your opinion on that, man. So the generation before me that when I came in were a lot, of, there were a lot of cowboys, you know, and being from Texas, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm kind of a cowboy too, but that background of riding rodeo or, 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 right. or bull riding or, or bronc riding or, or, or bulldogging, you know, you have to be able to, you know, can't, can't be scared to get hit. So a lot of stunt performers come from, you know, an, a, a, a rodeo background or an athletic background like football players. or So for me, I had 168 amateur fights when I got out of the Army. So, like, I wasn't scared to get hit. And, you know, being an athlete on that level, like being on the national team or being competing on that level, you have to – there's a lot of – there's that moment of truth that we all have, you know, like that where you can't lie in that moment. You have to be very real about what's going to happen and you have to make peace with it. You have to be calm in that moment. And all those years of competition and being in the army helped me settle into being in a very precarious position um, and being being at peace with it and making up my mind. Okay, I did one. You can't. It's not just like you're going to do one. You're going to do it one time. You're probably going to do it three or four times. <laughs> so it's it, it's also pain management. It's also your ability to 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 strive under uh, pain, like when you get when you're getting hurt. Now, the difference between getting hurt and getting injured. Getting hurt means you get up and do it again. Getting injured means you're in, you're on a ride and in an ambulance to the hospital to get sewn up or a broken bone. So I would say that most of the stunt performers, we all share the same likes, you know, like we all came from an athletic background or, you know, X games now, which I think are some of the most amazing people, parkour athletes now, you know, UCLA level, level gymnasts. Some of the, some of the best um, female stunt performers that I work with were elite gymnasts at some point, because, you know, you think like my daughter's in gymnastics and she started when she was four, but you have, the little girls doing this where they're peeling their hands up and they're dealing with pain and they're it's all about that one second that you have to hit the vault right you know you have to gather all that you have to make up your mind i'm going for it so that's kind of like doing being a stunt performer you know you just have to be able to to not lie in the moment of truth to be present in the moment of truth and execute you know so it's all about seeing yourself do it so i feel like that's something that we all have in common you know like one of the one of the big things for me is like being on the road with a bunch of like-minded folks coming up with just killer ways to physically displace humans. That's my job, you know, is, is coming up with clever ways to do it, but not injure them, you know, but make it like, cause now there's more movies and more content being made than any time in the history of cinema or film. And the expectations are way higher, way, yeah. way higher. You know, that yeah. like with video games and anime and all these other things that kids are watching now, they, you know, Die Hard is a great example of a movie that I loved in the 80s. Uh, uh, but if you if if you put a 16-year-old kid to watch that now, they'll be on their phone looking at their Instagram in 20 minutes. You know, it's just mm. it, it, it's 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 not what they're it's not going to capture their attention. You know what I mean? It's it's stuff that we've done already, which it, it's an amazing film. And I've got to work with McTiernan before he's an amazing director. But that's an yeah. example to me of where it came from and where it's going, you know. 
That's really interesting because I mean, I, I was watching because uh, I'm a I'm a huge fan of Fall Guy, the original show back in the day, and my wife and I were watching it. This is like probably five six years ago. We sat down and we watched the first full first season because we're like, oh man, remember Fall Guy? Let's go back and watch those. Man, those were freaking awesome. And you're watching it, and as you're watching what they did on a weekly basis, on a weekly basis, you're like, that was all real. Like these guys are insane. You don't see that kind of that kind of stunt work in television today. It was just they were doing gags. I mean, jumping off roofs, I'm like full blown. It was insane what they were doing. And you're going back, and that's that was all in camera. Where yeah. now I think, and you've seen, you've started at a point where it was all still in camera, and now you've got digital stunt performers doing some really you know insane stuff. But I do think that as as um as the audience. We can tell when, you know, Fast and the Furious is fun, but, you know, and the Marvel movies are fun, but, and the stunt performers that do, do stuff there is great. But when you watch something like John Wick, you feel it a lot more and you've been on, you worked on John Wick, obviously, but you feel that this is not a CG situation. You know, listen, um, around 2003 or four, everybody starts saying, oh, we'll fix it in post. (laughs) <laughs> you know, for me, and I'll tell you something about Fast and Furious, because I've done two. I did eight and nine. I second year directed eight and nine. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you something. We did wreck 340 cars, and we do go a thousand miles an hour when we're doing those movies. So there is a, a, the only way to fake fast is to go really fast. It's Fast and Furious, not slow and curious. But at the end <laughs> of the day, <laughs> at the end awesome. of the day, for me, it's like, uh, I, Day Shift is an example of stuff. We did everything in camera, even the contortions. I just shot it in reverse. I know. Yeah, so, I saw that. So, you know, like I, it doesn't speak to me to do to to work on a big cartoon movie. And I've worked on a ton of movies where everything's animated. You spend th- five months in a blue screen stage. That's not what I want to do. I don't usually take look for those jobs. I'm looking for the jobs where I can lock up Edinburgh, Scotland, like on Fast and Furious 8 and do a massive car chase and a chase flying over cities on wires and fighting and breaking through buildings or John Wick or. You know, any of these movies, like I'll give you an example. Gemini Man is another example of, a, of an amalgamation of both. We went to um, Cartagena, Colombia and did this massive motorcycle chase yeah. that we did all practically. And then, but they augmented um, Will Smith's face onto the motorcycle rider. So there's an element of both that I think works okay, that I like. Sure. But when it's a complete digital takeover, and pretty soon, you know, I think action directing is going to be a lost art soon. There's not a lot of, it's, it's infinitely harder to lock, to, to, to block a big car chase up when we got 19 cars and four motorcycles and helicopters and explosions. That's, a, that's not easy to do. It's actually a lot harder to do than most people think. That's where second unit comes in and, 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 and all the experience that I gained from being a second unit director, making me efficient and fast. And it's like, it's like cool. I'm not thinking about my shot. I'm thinking about my next five shots and my leaves to get to every shot. That's, that's filmmaking. I'm running nine cameras sometimes. So it's that, it's that nine camera spread, redirect the next street, the nine cameras, and push, pull, track, counter, and then mount, and then go to the next street. So, you know, that's something that I think will be a lost art soon because they'll be animating those cars at some point, you know, which breaks my heart, but I'll be long gone by then, my brother. I'll be <laughs> 
<laughs> exactly. No, I mean, yeah, I mean, when I said like Fast and Furious, I remember like when they, you know, jumping a, a car from a building to a building. I'm assuming yep. you didn't do that live. No, no, uh, no. <laughs> but things like that. But yeah, there is a in those those shows specifically. There's a ton of cars that they use, and you could tell that there's cars, and that's one of the things that made the original so amazing it was all Agreed. real in camera Agreed. and and that's the thing you're right there is a lost art i have to want to ask you is i think it's confusing to a lot of people listening especially young young filmmakers what is the hierarchy in the stunt department we'll be right back after a word from our sponsor and now back to the show so you start off with like the stunt performer what is the hierarchy as far as the department heads and things I can tell you the way it went for me. I started as a utility stuntman. Then I became a stunt double. And because of my background in martial arts and being in the army, I started become, I started choreographing the fights that I was in. And then that led me to becoming a fight choreographer. And then I became a stunt coordinator. And then I became a second unit director. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways to climb the ladder, but I feel like that's the long route, but that's the most important route to take because if you miss one of the rungs, you want to you want to hit every rung. You want to learn every facet of the game. You know, right. driving, motorcycles, water, fighting, falling, fire. You know, horseback. Every facet. The more facets that are on the diamond, the shinier that diamond is, and the more money you can eventually make if, with your in your profession. So I wanted to educate myself on every facet of that, um, and that's that's how it went for me. Uh, it's a bit different now because now there's infinitely more jobs than there are than there were when I started in. Now you can come in as a specialist. Oh, I'm a fight guy. Oh, I'm a parkour guy. Oh, I'm a gymnast. Or oh. and that's that's the way they come in, and that's the way they go. So, but you know that doesn't. I'm not knocking them. There's some amazing talent out there now. With you know, I think once uh, YouTube hit and editing software became a consumer product, editing software made a lot of us action directors because once you know how to edit, it informs what you need to shoot, and you know. Growing up on watching those mid-80s Jackie Chan films where he really changed the game of fighting. And he's one of he's an idol of mine because he's a stuntman that became a star and then became an action director. So right. I mean, that's you know, like he was a Charlie Chaplin in a um, what's his name? The the Buster Keaton. Buster Keaton. He was a Chan is a huge fan, we all are, but that's kind of where his inspiration came from. In our my generation, like I came up with Chad Stahelski and and Dave Leach and and a lot of the guys over at eighty seven eleven. I'm a member of that crew and I'm also a member of Stunts Unlimited. Who are those original guys that did the Fall Guys? Stunts Unlimited is they've been around since nineteen seventy three. But that's um, yeah, but that's kind of how it was. And um, you know, watching Chan's trajectory is kind of the way. Like, cause he changed what we would do. Did is we took his movies and we would reshoot shoot his action sequences with cameras and then cut them even on VHS, VHS deck to deck until Final Cut became a consumer product. We all chipped in and then we all learned how to edit. And then we became action directors, budding action directors. Now, you know, with all the insane, you know, gags that you guys have done over the years, has, has, there, ever, has there ever been a stunt that you just said, nah, man, I got to walk away from this one. This is just too, too risky. The biggest stunt I ever did was getting married to a lawyer. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm still married. <laughs> so, no, um, I, I look at the end of the day, um, I'm not I'm, I'm just OK in the water. You know, I'm not uh, I'm not. I've done. So on the, did you see the movie The Rundown? Yeah, of course. Yeah, the, the Rock. So I was doubling Sean William Scott when we went down the mountain and over the falls and all that shit. 
me and Paulie Leopolis and Tono Y. Reed and Marcos Aurora, we were, there was two sets of doubles for each because we were getting so busted up. And there was a scene where we had to go into a lagoon and swim towards a waterfall. And I had boots on and jeans on. And uh, Tono Y. Reed is Hawaii. He's from Hawaii. He's big, big uh, he's like a shark when he gets in the water. He's massive. And he's like, you know, he's got gills. He can swim like a fish. And his wife was doubling uh, the girl in there. And she's another one who grew up in Hawaii. He's like, after take three or four, I started getting really tired. And I was like, hey, man, uh, I probably need to tap out. So I would say, like, doing a lot of water work for me is not my forte. I'm like a brick. I'm like a, a brick from Texas. You put me in the water and I might go right to the bottom, bro. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, you, you, you also got involved uh, in one of my favorite films of the 90s, Mortal Kombat, man. Yep. Dude, how did you get involved with that? And then you eventually played some of the parts of like Sub-Zero and those kind of things. I mean, again, those at the time. I remember at the time, man. I mean, you couldn't go anywhere without listening to that damn song uh, mm -hmm. in the radio. First of all. What was it? I mean, how did you get involved with that project, man? And, and how did you guys make it look so cool back then? Man? So I was I used to have two Taekwondo schools in L.A. while I was a stuntman. I had one in Inglewood. It's called Taekwondo West. One in Inglewood and one in Sherman Oaks. And the one in Sherman Oaks, I had a friend named Dana He who was already working on the movie. She was an Olympic gold medalist from Taekwondo. We're friends from my sport from Taekwondo. We were teammates, like friend, you know, competitors together and dear friends. She was dating Larry Kazanoff, the producer of Mortal Kombat at the time. They were looking for a stunt double for Johnny Cage for the additional photography of Mortal Kombat 1. She brings Larry into my school in the middle of one of my classes, and I can see him staring at me, and I'm like, Dana, who's the dude staring at Larry Kazanov, the producer of Mortal Kombat? And, you know, class is over. I meet him. I'm like, nice to meet you, sir. And he said, hey, can you show me some kicks? And I bust out a 540, and I bust out a bunch of kicks. Oh, man, that's awesome. Can you turn around for me? And I was like, what's that mean? He's looking at the back of my head, so if I could double uh, the actor who's playing Johnny Cage. And he was like, this is perfect. Two days later, I get a call from Robin Shu, who's the uh, who's the star of the movie and also one of the fight coordinators. And Jeff Imada was the stunt coordinator. I get a call. Hey, why don't you come down and double Johnny Cage for the additional fight with Scorpion on the on the bamboo bridge thing? Right? It was a it was a big uh, additional scene. So I got to do that. And as soon as that was in, you know, as soon as it was a big hit, they greenlit two. Then I played Scorpion and Cyrax in two and did some doubling for. Little uh, doubling for Raiden, a little doubling for Smoke, a little doubling for all the characters, but played two of the characters. And then when the TV series came out, Larry called me and says, hey, will you come down and double Kung Lao? So I doubled Kung Lao for the first few episodes. And then they said, can you play Scorpion? Can you play um, Sub-Zero? And I was like, yeah, dude, I, I'll do whatever. You know, like, I'm happy. Like, <laughs> I was always concerned about my acting. But when you have that thing on your face, you know, it's like. It's just eyes. Yeah. Zero. So I was Sub-Zero, now I'm Chub-Zero, and that's how it goes. <laughs> but that was like my Mortal Kombat experience, you know? Like, I was super, super stoked. Um, now that a lot of the youngsters that work for me now, they, they'll pull it up on YouTube, and I'm a little embarrassed about my bad acting and whatever, you know, like being in a loincloth. <laughs> hey, man, hey, it's the 90s, bro. What are you going to do? Pay the bills, on. dog. What are you going to do? It pays the bills. It paid the bills. No question. Now, you know, as, as you became a second unit director, which I still think second unit directors are some of the most technically sound directors out Agreed. there. If you can direct action, you can direct cinema because it's a visual medium. I think Quentin's the one who said it. He's like, my favorite directors are action directors like Tony Scott and, and those and those kind of guys who just are so technical uh, and visual. What are mistakes that directors make when setting up an action sequence that you've seen? 
So, you know, what we've done, like 8711 is a is a is the team I've been on. Before that it was called Smash Cuts. And it was a, it was kind of a the crew of us that came up in the 90s together, like Stahowski, Leach, Marcus Young, Mike Gunter, uh Danny Hernandez. There was a bunch of Brad Martin, Garrett Warren. These are all guys that are prominent community <laughs> directors now that are running the that are running all the fights up. In the last 30 years, what we did once that final cut came out, we start shooting stunt viz, which is an act. We shoot and cut the sequence before we go to the set. We make a room full of boxes that measures out from the production designer. And then we shoot and cut it shot for shot where we make the action the star without we want to tell our certain story points after having a discussion with the director and a discussion with the DP about his style, you know, like and we. We give them a, a broad outline of what it would look like based on their version. And usually we get it right within three versions, like we tied it up within three versions. I've been paired up in the past few years with a lot of first and second time directors. I get paired up with them often to, you know, to help. When it comes to the action, it can be quite daunting, you know, like if you're not used to doing it. And you're right. Locking up Scotland with a bunch of cars and doing wire work over a city and using nine cameras is infinitely harder now that I've done both than directing a scene with three people in a room talking, unless you don't have three good actors. Well, there's you that. Have bad actors, maybe it's <laughs> way harder. But my point being, the technical execution of that, the, 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 the application of filmmaking is, is extremely difficult, especially when you're going 70 miles an hour and you're gonna go like through seven streets with explosions and whatever, and you have a finite amount of time to do it because second unit is never as elaborate or as funded as first unit is. It has to be a streamlined, uh, a streamlined event that uh, that moves like a that moves like a rocket. So I I think one of the mistakes that um, one of the th mistakes that a lot of uh, first and second time directors make is not having a clear vision of what they want. And sometimes my job is to help them discover their vision, whether he or she knows what it is or not. So it's my kind of, I always take it upon myself is it's my job, if they don't know, to show them and to give them options. To, that's my job as a stunt coordinator, as a fight coordinator, and a second unit director, is to help the director achieve their vision of the action. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Now back to the show, which is harder than achieving your vision of the action. When I know what I want, I always know what I want. So as a director, I came in with a really solid plan for my movie. I've had the set, my production designer, Greg Barry, we already knew what the sets were going to be and where to put the neoprene and which walls needed to fly because the camera's going to do this. I already knew. So it's 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 a new it's like my, it's in the neighborhood that I've been roaming around for 32 years. And if you're new to the neighborhood, it's easy to get lost. And I think a lot of the one of the things that uh, some directors are a little intimidated by is they don't want to they don't want to they want to go out and wander around and find it for themselves. And that's cool. But we're not in film school. We're in film work when we're making a movie. So you do have a finite amount of time and you have to be decisive because. Every decision you make as a director has a ripple effect from all of the departments that it has to go to. Production designer, okay, you're fighting, you're gonna tear this, costume needs to go, you punch him here, what, uh, makeup needs this, uh, you're gonna break his arm, props and prosthetic arm needs to go. And using it, so you have to be decisive and give your team a chance to react to your decisions 
So it's not last minute. And this is one of the mistakes that I think a lot of first and time directors make is they're, they don't want to decide, they, they will not make decisions in time. Now, when you were involved with John Wick, I mean, that must have been a dream. Like yeah. that project must be, a, because it was just such an old school approach to fight. And it's yeah. not like being cut 50,000 angles. It's like you see Keanu beating up three guys, one shot. And you're, it's not like the, the famous one is like, you know, I don't know if you know who shot taken three or two or whatever. But you see, you know, I saw this one this one sequence somebody bought on YouTube. It was so beautiful. It's like it's Liam running and jumping across uh, a fence as he's chasing somebody. It was 75 cuts. I mean, it was like no joke. It was like tick, 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 tick. As opposed to something like John Wick, you just look at it and you're like, that's just that. So what was it like to just getting the call and going, I'm that gay, brother? So I was on the Expendables 3 in Bulgaria with Jason Statham and Sylvester Stallone on a container in, 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 uh, in, um, in Sofia shooting machine guns when Chad Stahowski called me. We're, we're teammates. And, you know, mad respect to Chad and Dave for what all that they've accomplished. You know, they, that style of mixing judo with jujitsu in gun work. He calls me and I was about to finish up in Expendables 3. He said, hey, listen, I'm doing the shootout in nightclub in New York on, this, on my movie John Wick. I need your help because I was in the army. So I know how to work the gun work. And I, and look, we were all big fans of hard boiled, you know, the John oh, movies, so but, but I want to get my hands on those Chinese guns that have 500 bullets in them. He never reloads. I love those guns. I want to get one of those. <laughs> but I, that's one of the things that we, one of the mantras was, was um, that we would be true to that. If you're running a Glock, 17 with a regular magazine you have 15 and one you have an extended mag you get eight to 17 and one or 18 and one so that was it i got the call to come down they were shooting the la the final scene out on the dock when he's fighting the the father of the guy at the end he gives me an address of a nightclub and says we want to shoot um we want to start shooting we're going to shoot the nightclub scene at this place <clears throat> can you go there i got there on a friday afternoon they're shooting at night so i just drove to that address gave the door guy a hundred bucks to let me in uh, and, and walk through there. He said, it'll start at the top. When you go up the stairs, the room to your right, it'll start there. There's a door to walk in. You'll go through. We'll work our way all the way around the top floor. And then we'll, the beginning of it, we'll pull him through the dance floor. So I just walked with my iPhone doing a first-person shooter at patrons of the club. Then I would turn the phone around to myself, do a reload. And then, so what John Wick is, it's exactly the opposite. It's reverse first-person shooter. It's always on Keanu pulling him and, and then wrapping and until it falls apart and then we do it all over again. So it's a big pull into a wrap and that's that's technically the, the idea, the theory of shooting. So you see Keanu Reeves is doing this. So for me, once we once I got there and we started you know, working that out, I knew right away looking at the monitors with Chad and Dave, I was like, dude, we're on one. You guys are on one right now. I said, it's cutting edge because, you know, gun, this is the thing. Now that I've done a John Wick, I've done two. I did the, the just the club scene shootout in the first one, and then I did all of the second one. And we upped Keanu's training camp for the second one because what Chad said to me, he said, how can we make two better than one? I said, well, you have to make Keanu better. So we put him in a really hard jujitsu camp, judo camp, took him to a three-gun range and had him trained by a 14-time you know, world three-gun champion named Taron Butler up here in Simi Valley. We just made him better. And then let the camera run longer. 
So, you know, that was, it was one of the highlights of my career because I'm a dear friend and fan of Keanu Reeves. I'm a huge fan of Chad Stahelski because we go back 32 years. One of the first people I met when I got out of the army, he's been a huge, um, a huge ally, you know, like, again, I didn't really have a plan when I got out of the army. I just didn't want to fuck things up and have to end up back in the army. But, you know, Chad, you know, went to USC. He was always, uh, he always knew that he, I think he always knew he was going to be a director. And I really admire that. I kind of watched where he walked in the snow and followed his footsteps. So, you know, he was actually a producer on Day Shift. He was the one that I took it to that got me greenlit. So that was, you know, that was one of the big, uh, helping him out and working with our team at 8711 was, was always a pleasure. There was a lot of hitters on that movie, bro, on the first and second one. So um, it's so funny because I remember Dave, um, I met Dave uh, on in Sundance. In 2005, yep. when he was promoting as a sledge. Yep. You remember that movie? Yep. Yep. We, I worked on it. We all worked Did on you work, it. You worked on sledge? So I was, yeah, he was like, he was doing like a stunt thing. Uh, and I met him and we hung out for a while. And this is before, you know, this is what a, a few years before he did John Wick. But I, as I was watching his career grow, I'm like, man, God bless me. I'm so glad he's, he's done good for, him, for himself yeah. over the years, man. That's, it's awesome. Um, now, you know, Alex, listen, you know, if you look at if you look at stunt performers trajectory, like I've worked on 150 features and over 300 episodes of TV. Geez. When you're working with Ang Lee, Jet Li, uh, uh, Spike Lee, when you work with everyone, you, you have to learn something if you're paying attention. You right. know, like that's a different I guess the difference between a stunt guy and a stunt man. A stunt guy is just trying to make a bunch of money and get some toys. A stunt man is out there trying to make the movie better and he's paying attention to every shot and trying to make every shot better. So, you know, being being a stuntman, you know, and learning from some of the masters and learning just as much from second and first and second time directors on what not to do sometimes. Right. Part of my film school. And, you know, Dave and Chad are like so the the first one is um, the guy who directed um, from my group um, that directed Smoking the Bandit. Okay. Hal Needham. Hal yes, Needham. Hal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he busted out in the 70s. He's one of the founders of my group, Stunts Unlimited, you know, so. He's one of the guys that busted out. And you have a few stunt directors from the U.S. that have done some movies. You know, like Jackie Chan, for me, is one of the all-time greats because he, you know, he took it completely to the next level in there and, and he did stuff that we're still doing now. But Chad and Dave, for me, were instrumental in opening the door. And hopefully that door gets torn off the hinges because in the mid-2000s, in the early 2000s, there was this wave of visual effects directors that were directing movies. And the difference between us and them, not to knock them, is they don't have a human experience. When you're making a visual effect previs, you're on a computer and the computer will do exactly what you tell it to do. Right. Now, fast forward to me training Keanu or us training um, Tom Hardy and Warrior or Joel Edgerton and Warrior or uh, Charlie Theron on, on Atomic Bond, us, them, we're training them. We're grabbing, do this. We're directing them. We're making them badasses. The only best way to fake being a badass is just to make them a badass. We are directing them and we have their trust. So when we're on set and someone says, well, I don't want to stand over here. I want to stand over there. I'm like, I can adjust quickly. But that visual effects director was like, well, wait a minute. No, my, my, you know, they don't know how it's, it, the computer does exactly what it, they tell them to do. When they get the human effect, when the human effect comes in, it became very difficult for them. And also it's, it's interfacing as a stunt coordinator, you're constantly interfacing with all the other departments. So you have this dialogue and this repertoire with everyone on the movie and production meetings, going to their offices. So 
I know how to communicate with everyone. I've, I have a relationship with pretty much every crew, every anywhere, because I've filmed in 36 countries. So it's a huge advantage for us as action directors becoming directors because we have this film, not film school experience, but filmmaking experience, which is entirely different than theory. It's execution. It's like fighting. The guy that hits the bag all day, you don't know what he's going to do when he gets punched in the face. But the guy that spars all day, he's reactive and proactive and hyperactive. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. You know, so that's that's my take on on action directing. You know, that's my take on it. Well, it's kind of like Mike Tyson says, everyone's got a plan until you get punched in the face. Amen, my brother. Amen. <laughs> Amen. You can be as badass as you want, but until you get that first punch in the face, all that shit goes out the window really quickly. That's, that's right. So, man, I got a chance to watch your new film, Day Shift, brother. First of all, congratulations. Um, when I saw it, I was just like, I was expecting great action. I got great action. And then as I was seeing some of the techniques in the movie, I was watching it, and I'm like, oh, this is all old school style, in-camera stuff. I'm like, yes. And then when I saw the um, contortionist vampires, um, I was like, oh, yes. He did, like, because then you can't. BS that it's so I mean you could do visual effects to do that but man when you get a contortionist out there doing crazy stuff it just brings such reality so tell everybody what the movie's about and and then we'll get into the how you made it so um the movie's about a man that got out of the army a lot like me uh that's trying to keep his family together and you know LA is a tough place to live brother like when I got out of the army I was not prepared for rent and insurance and etc cetera, etc cetera. so he's he's a guy that um that has a job cleaning pools and he augments his uh, his uh, income by killing vampires and selling their teeth in an underground um, in an underground market of vampire hunters that extract vampire teeth and kill them. And what really attracted me to this, you know, <clears throat> I'd been reading a lot of scripts, and I was super stoked just being a <clears throat> stunt coordinator and second year director, making a ton of dough, flying all over the world, smashing people with all my friends, and then getting on a plane and going somewhere else and doing it all over again. It was a big risk for me to step out and direct a film. So I was going to be very picky. And I read a bunch of scripts. Oh, JJ, you were in the army. You should do a movie about PTSD snipers. I was like, no, man, the world's dark right now. You know, right now with COVID and a double feature of monkeypox and a triple feature of war in Ukraine, the world's dark. You can turn on the news right now and find a thousand reasons to, to want to turn it off. Right. I, when I saw, when I read the script day shift, it spoke to me immediately because Big Trouble in Little China, Lost Boys, uh, Evil Dead, um, um, Fright Night from the 80s, action comedy horror. I don't have a message. There's, I'm not trying to tell anyone to do anything or change anyone's mind. I just want them to enjoy. And having those three elements, action, comedy, and horror, I always will have the upper hand on the audience. I can wow them with action. I can make them laugh with comedy. And I can make them jump with horror. So using those three tiers, those three elements of it, those three layers of attack, it was like triangulating my crossfire on the audience to keep them right where I wanted them. The script spoke to me because there's an underground world of vampires and an underground world of hunters that chase them, which is just like John Wick, but different. Right. So that's what they were coming. I got a lot of John Wick-ish scripts, esque scripts. And I was like, I already did that, man. And I don't want to bite on what Chad and Keanu are doing. And they'll, people will always say, oh, it's John Wick, you know? But this, and the movie I made is not John Wick with vampires. <laughs> it's definitely not. I definitely wanted to to get as far away from that as I could because I, I'd already worked on that. And I don't want to 
I want to give the bow to my bros at 8711 Chad and Dave. They did a great job with that. I don't want to bite on that. There's enough people doing it right now. Oh, so God. I got that <laughs> script. I got it from Sean and Yvette Yates from Impossible Dream. They brought it to me. They've been big, you know, advocates. And then the guy, Tyler Tice, who wrote it, a gem, me and him worked on it for about a year. I do, we just put big action teeth on it, you know, big teeth. And then um, I made it, the characters as familiar to me as possible. Like Big John's character was like my platoon sergeant in the army. Bud's wife is like my wife. My wife's an attorney. She's the Mike Tyson of arguers. Um, you know, so, and, and Bud has a nine-year-old daughter. I have a nine-year-old daughter. So I, I, I try to make it relatable to me. So when the thespians would ask me, I would be able to speak intelligently. And I'll be honest, the thing that really worried me more than anything was the comedy. Yeah, because that's something. Yeah. Bubba, I think I'm funny, but I don't know if anyone else fucking thinks I'm funny. <laughs> so so well, Harry, day, Harry, J- Harry, Harry, Jerry Fox, uh, Jamie Fox uh, is not a Bubba, bad. <laughs> getting day shift was a win. Getting Jamie Fox was winning the lottery. Oh, so talented. Oh, my God. What a G, bro. And, D- and him and Dave Franco together. Oh, great. So, great chemistry. Great chemistry. I, I worked at, on a movie called Spy several years ago with that Paul Feig directed. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I did the action for him and I did some second unit for him. And I watched, you see, I'm, I was, I, I foresaw all, I was hoping this would happen from right when Chad and Dave finished John Wick. I started going to, you know, read, I'd ask directors when I'd get hired, I'd be like, hey, can I sit through read throughs? Can I do, I wanted to be more a part of that to watch the decisions being made. I really paid attention to Paul on how he directed the action. And he had these things, post-it notes. And he would have, it was almost like an accordion of post-it notes with alts that he had scribbled down. So when he would just let the camera roll and say, all right, try this, all right, try this. And then he would say, okay, now run with it. So having Jamie and, and Dave Franco in the comedy, bro, I just let the cameras roll and let them just have at it. So, you know, I, 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 I think, you know, Jamie, for me, was the biggest win of all. You know, getting the movies huge. Thank you, Netflix. Thank you, Chess. That else for being greenlit. Thank you, Impossible Dream, for bringing it to me. Thank you, Tyler, for writing it. And Jamie Foxx, uh, I will forever owe a debt of gratitude and always, always be a good pro to him because that was him showing up to do my movie was such a massive thing for me. Now, with, you know, a lot of second unit directors don't get the shot. A lot of them stay as second unit directors for their career. And like you said, I can have fun. I can go out. I'm working on big budgets. I'm having this fun, fun, fun. So it, when I saw that you were, you know, when I went and started doing research on you, I was like, oh, this is his first shot. Like this is, this is not a normal scenario. Cause a lot of times action, second unit directors, no action, but they have no idea how to deal with actors. Like on a, on a, whatchamacallit, on a, like a dialogue state or how to carry, you know, character arcs and things like that. It's a little tougher. Uh, to do that. So, but when I saw what you did, I was like, man, I'm interested to see how he does. And I was like, man, he held it together, man. Like the whole story was well put together. There's some beautiful Easter eggs for someone of my, uh, my vintage uh, to, uh, to grab onto some, uh, some lost boy lines. Uh, well, give it away. I, I, when I saw do that, it. Lot, I was like, I was like, nice. So some, some nice little Easter eggs along the way. Um, but it was just, it was just, it was just well done. It was really well done. And I was telling you earlier before we got started, man, the color of it looks great. The, 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 you could feel how hot it is um, during, you could feel like at the Valley. And then that, since I'm from the Valley, I was just, I was just like, I was from the Valley. I was just like, yep. Oh, 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 they're deep in the Valley over there. They're, they're, 
that's not Burbank. Nope, that's over. <laughs> so it was fun. Always, it's always fun for me when they shoot something in LA to like, yep, been there. Yep, oh, I know where that is. Yep. <laughs> so you know, brother, listen. When I got out of the army, it kind of was like that. I moved to the valley first. I, I lived in the back of a Taekwondo school for a while. Then when I got made my first bit of money, I moved to the valley. You have to. That's the trajectory. I think you move to the valley. You have to move down by the airport when you first get here. If you don't have any money, then you right. make your way over the hill. Which will be night shift part two. We'll, we'll be in Hollywood or, you know, we'll be in Hollywood maybe next time. But that was the trajectory. And, and one of the things that I remember about the Valley when I first got there was being from Texas, it's hot and humid. But the colors in the Valley, that orangey. And listen, yeah. I'd be total disclosure. I am co- completely colorblind. The worst colorblind you can be. But that orange for me really resonates. In the opening of, um, of um, Die Hard, when the plane lands, the orange sun is yeah. setting when the plane lands. That's what I showed Toby Oliver when I said, I need your help with this because I want the interiors to feel cold like vampires would be there. You can right. almost feel the breath. But when you're outside, it should be hot and sticky and like like the valley, you know, where you hear the of the water, of the water watering things of the you hear like of the cicadas, you know, you all of that that I wanted to get bring that to the movie. So yeah, that was part of it for me. And, and Toby Oliver is is a gem. You know, we shot the movie in 42 days with no second unit, which is a very short wow. shoot yeah. for a movie of that size. And uh, we didn't have a lot of time. We shot 31 days in Atlanta and 11 days in L.A. So I was scared. Uh, all my interiors in Atlanta and a few exteriors. So what I did in L.A., what all of my establishing shots of L.A., I would do these big drone handoffs. Big drone shots showing the valley. And we'd have the operator catch the drone, the, we hit a button, the drone would fly off, and then we'd follow our actors into wherever they were going. Yeah. So I really hosed the valley because I wanted to, and I think the valley is hot, sweaty, sexy, cool, exotic, trippy. You know, you can smell the different flavors of food in the air. You can hear oh, yeah. seven different languages being spoken. It was this mystical place when I moved there, being from South Texas, you know, like, <laughs> whoa, the valley, you know, like, what a trip. So that was part of it for me is to, to show how exotic the Valley was. So there you go. So, you know, as a director, you know, and I'm sure you've had this happen on other projects as well. There's always that one day that the whole world's come crashing down around you. You're like, oh my God, we're not going to make it. We're not going to make the day. We're not going to make the shot or something's going to happen. And it's generally every day we have every, every day there's a moment of that, but generally on this project, was there one day that stands out that you're just like, I, I feel like, security is going to come and take me away. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. <laughs> no, and I'll, but there's a moment I'll tell you, it's, it's funny. So I was never afraid of the action at all, ever. And my first AD, his name is uh, Bill Clark. I call him Wild Bill. He's Quentin Tarantino's first AD. He's a dear friend. The scene where uh, the vampires come to get Bud and his wife, it's the very end of the movie when they, they leave mm-hmm. Seth and they take his wife and daughter. Bill comes to me the night before when we were wrapping up. He goes, you know, you got seven and a half pages of dialogue tomorrow. And I was like, yeah, well, cool. And I didn't know what that meant. You know, I was like, a cool. lot of dialogue. And he goes, hey, Bubba, you got seven and a half pages of dialogue tomorrow. And I was like, cool, great. He goes, uh, he just kind of pulled me, you know, he's like, hey, so let's talk about this. So it didn't really dawn on me till about four o'clock in the afternoon when I was like, oh, shit, I better pay better attention to that. But, you know, at the end of the day, we, we ended up getting that right. Uh, we had, a, we had um, you know, it's because the cast was so great and everyone, 
No one went back to their trailers. Everybody hung out on set. We were playing music between setups. You know, everybody was having a good time. I wanted to keep the set light like I keep my second unit light. It's either Metallica or Stevie Ray Vaughan between setups or, you know, dealer's choice. We get a new DJ and we had Jamie with his boom box and we had, you know, the taco truck here and there and the coffee truck. So it ended up working out all right. And it was my ignorance that saved me because I wasn't afraid. You don't, you're not afraid of what you don't know until you know it, right? Of course. Of and course. then I was, yeah. I, it kind of worked out. And Bill at the end of that day went, whoa. <laughs> he said, that was almost like having a baby. And I was like, well, I can't speak on that yet, but I can tell you now I know what seven and a half pages means. So seven and a half pages is a lot of dialogue, man. I mean, unless you're doing master, unless you're doing master shot theater, uh, then it's cool. You can knock that out in 30 minutes, but if you're doing what, you know, a normal setup, man, that's a lot of dialogue. There were nine people in the room too. So there's a lot oh. of coverage, you know, there's a lot of coverage. And also you had to not, we had to be careful not to shoot the mirror because the vampires are invisible in the mirrors. And I didn't have a huge visual effects budget on the movie. So I had to be very conscious of everything I was doing. Right. No, exactly. And uh, how many cameras did you shoot with generally? When we were doing all of the, when we were doing all the dialogue, always three cameras. I always run three cameras. And then when we were doing the car chase, I was running seven cameras because we, you know, it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't, we didn't have a lot of time and it wasn't a fast and furious budget or a, you know, a gray man budget, but it was, it wasn't a little budget either. They, they were very generous with me. So I just, because of second unit, I know how to budget my time really, really well when it comes to action. I just know. This is going to work. This is going to work. I got to do this. Okay, this one. This I can make a change here. We can not cut here and go here. I, I know how to. I know how to run the table. I know how to play shoot that. I know how to clean the table. How to run that eight ball. But what, um. So what was but, the biggest challenge you had on this project? Since I mean, since it's your first full feature, you've done tons of second. What was the yeah, biggest challenge? The hardest part for me was getting the opportunity to do it, bro. You know, to be honest. Yeah, I was going How'd you do that, by the way? Well, you know, like when Sean and Yvette brought it to me. Uh, and we worked on it for a year. I was doing Fast and Furious 8 in um, London. Chad was in London with Keanu promoting John Wick 3. Now, I had shot the first sequence with the old lady as a stunt viz. And I had done a vampire genogram, different species. And I had done two sizzle reels and a lookbook. So we're out partying at the Gaucho Room with Keanu and Chad, celebrating the release of their movie, John Wick 3. Went and hanging out with him. And about four in the morning, Chad leans over and he goes... Hey, man, I'm probably going to get some sort of first, first look deal. Do you have anything? And I was like, <laughs> yeah, funny you should mention that. I slid it. You know, I didn't slide it across the table, but I texted, I emailed it to him. And I knew he was flying back to L.A. the next day. And at 6 a.m., when he was in the car on the way to the Heathrow, I texted him. I said, hey, give that thing a look while you're on the plane. He landed in L.A. And he, by the time he landed, he calls me. He's going to make this move. And literally, oh, two weeks later, we're in meetings to make this movie and it was happening. So COVID hit, which put it on a hold. So the trajectory was Sean and Yvette Yates, uh, Sean Reddick and Yvette Yates from Possibly, give me the script, get behind me. Tyler Tice and I work on it for about a year together. Chad's the house, he sees it, gets excited about it, walks it in Netflix, Ori Marmer, Taylor Z, get excited about it, about the package of Chad and this movie and myself. Jamie Foxx comes on board and it turns into like a holy shit, it's gonna be massive. And here we are. It's all, all in the past now. It's all, in, all behind us. So that's kind of the way it happened. And it happened really fast. We shot it really fast. I had the, one of the best times I've ever had prepping and shooting the movie. The only place that I was not aware of was post-production. Because 32 <laughs> years of prepping movies and shooting movies, you never, like I've been in the editing room a couple of times with 
directors cutting yeah. together. Because I always, when I shoot second unit, I cut while I'm shooting and I deliver it. So I shoot a stunt biz for proof of, proof of concept. Then when I'm shooting what I shoot, I shoot and cut the footage off of the DIT and hand it to them and say, proof of execution. You don't have to cut it this way. You cut it any way you want to. But this was my version of your vision. And now it's locked and now it's done. If you want to give it to your editors as a roadmap, do whatever you like. But here it is. So all that being said, prepping the movie and shooting it was such a piece of cake. Going into post-production, I had already cut all of the action while we were shooting. So theoretically, a third of the movie was cut already when we get to post. So watching the whole process of post, I learned so much in post Mm -hmm. about what I don't need to do. (laughs) <laughs> and I'll tell you, like yeah. all those shots of the techno crane pushing oh. over the pool that follows the feet up and nope. takes blood, closes the door and a lens flare mm-hmm. hits from the sun. That 45 oh. second shot, my cinematic, my Kurosawa shots, all gone, dog, all freaking <laughs> gone. Yep. So, so yep. I learned so much about what I don't need to do that I would tell you confidently uh, as a 54 year old budding filmmaker that my sophomore uh effort will be infinitely better than my freshman effort wow that's so true man it's so true because even look so it's so funny to say that man because you've been in the biz man for you know decades at this point you've shot so much you've worked at the highest levels and yet you fell into the same trap that first time directors fall into like Let's make this one shot here, and then we'll do the Goodfellas shot through the through the kitchen and, the, and all that stuff. And like, remember Kurosawa, oh, that Kubrick thing. We'll do that thing, and it's and, and you and you fall into that, and you realize when you get in the cutting room, like I, I st- it just stops the entire movie. You can't do that. It went like this. So the action was cut. Uh, we watched the movie for the first time, probably three, two and a half or three weeks in. We just put all the reels together, and the movie came in at two hours and forty three minutes. <laughs> So I looked at it and I was like, oh, all right, cool. So I I wanted, listen, I never wanted anyone. I was very conscious of this because I'm always watching. I made this movie for our generation, Gen X, but I also made it for the millennials and the Gen Gen Y and Gen Z. Hence the Bud and Seth uh, counterparts, that that difference. And I'll get into that in a minute. Remind me to tell you about where that was inspired from. But um, that was, it was easy for me because I didn't want my movie to feel long. I wanted it to be easy to watch because you listen, I'm not going to say any, I'm not going to call any movies out, but there's a lot of movies now that I watch that are hard. That, like I love them, but they get become like I'm sitting and now I'm aware they're that fat. I'm watching. They're fat. I was they're making fat. day shift for not for the small screen for being seven or 10 feet away from your big screen TV, from your sofa, you're sitting four feet high, looking at your screen. I that's in my mind. That was the movie I was making. I was not shooting it for a theater because it was, you know, Netflix's small screen, but it's big screen ambitions on the small screen. So in saying that, it was very easy for me. Once I cut that first part of my finger off, I let that long shot go. It became easy for me to see. It is just at 54 in all those years of experience comes in wisdom. Like I know I have to, I have to sift some of this out. So I let it go quickly, you know, like, listen, I, be honest yeah. with you, it, it's not it's not um, it's not Shakespeare. And if it was Shakespeare, they wouldn't be hiring me, bro. They wouldn't hire a caveman like me. <laughs> it has to be fast and fun and something has to happen. And I don't want anyone to feel like, OK, I'm waiting now. What's going on? I don't want them looking at their Instagram. So that was kind of the 
the full full filmmaking experience that I wanted to create is something that was scary, actiony, funny, and easy to watch. And it's exactly it. Like that's not a movie that can be two hours and forty five minutes. Like that 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 story is not that story. So it's just not. But it's, it needs to be fast and tight and quick and 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 you fun and and that's the kind of thing you know you're not making Braveheart, uh, you yep. know which is which you need three hours to tell that story and it's and it's okay to do that and honestly I don't know if Braveheart gets made today and that's no I, I, I'm I a huge I used to double Mel Gibson strangely and I'm a huge fan of, I think he's one of the best filmmakers oh. alive you know like listen I, I used to be a stunt Apoc- double and I'm huge fan bro oh like, Apocalypto work- Apocalypto oh. God, it's a brilliant film. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. I The 250 millimeter lens on my set is called the Mel Gibson because he always has a camera on a 250. And he always, he told me, he goes, hey kid, you want to see what's going on in there? Put the 250 in and reach in there and get them. And you can see what they're thinking, bro. So I always use that 250 <laughs> for that get the Mel Gibson out, guys. What I want to tell you, what are they thinking that moment, you know? So, yes, um, you're right. It's it's not, and they probably won't make a Braveheart, but kudos to Mel for making it. And um, Yeah, yeah. when when they could. And you told me to ask you about the the generational thing. So, yes, uh, I'm on the road as a stunt coordinator, second director with all of these apex um, stunt performers and stunt coordinators that that work with me for the last, we've done, I've been on the road with the same guys for about eight or nine years. 8711, Stunts Unlimited, I hire within my team, Justin Yu, Troy Robinson, uh, Mike Lair, they're, they're my bros. But they're, except for Troy, those other guys and, female, and girls that are in my group are all millennials and Gen X and Gen Y, like parkour champions, world kung fu champion, car drifting champion, trick motorcycle champion, but they're all kids. And I love them, but I don't know what the fuck they're talking about half the time, dude. And we all love each other and laugh at each other, but it's it's that awkward thing that I wanted, that I experienced on the road with my teammates that I love. And we spend time together and we hang out and watch MMA and go to the movies and do functions and stuff together and risk our lives together and make a bunch of dough together. But when I listen to them talk about things, I'm like, what are they talking about? That's exactly what I wanted to portray, that dynamic between Bud and Seth in my movie. Mm-hmm. Like there's the generation that gets their knowledge from this Right. They get their phone and it's Google. You and me, I'm 54 and we're probably your Gen X. I'm, I'm, I'm not I'm not too far away from you, sir. <laughs> so, you know, we, we were kids. If you wanted to learn something, you had to go there and learn it. Oh, dude, dude, you, you had me to go, like, library, library, oh, photocopy. I joined, the, I joined the army because I was a junior national Taekwondo champion. So I could go get stationed in Korea so I could fight the best in the world. So I, I, I committed four years of my life to the army just for Taekwondo, just so I could go there and fight and, and train. So I know the way this gym smells at Chamshil. I know the way the gym smells in Thailand and Lumpini Stadium. I know the way that Budokan, the floor feels when you walk on it. Kids that learn on, on this, they don't know that. They're getting the knowledge without actually earning it, which comes without the wisdom of learning. No, not knocking my younger brothers and sisters because I have a huge admiration for them and we can learn a lot from them as well. But that... For me, the practical application versus the quicker knowledge is another thing that I wanted to portray in my movie. And then, and if I if I can get up on my old man soapbox, uh, the difference is that our generation is a, I call us the bridge generation because yep. we were at a time when we understood pre-internet, 
pre-technology. I don't know about you, but I remember a time when there was no remotes. That's right. I was I was the remote for my grandfather. He's like, get up and change the channel. (laughs) And you would go like that stuff. I showed my daughters a rotary phone the other day and their minds just exploded. They just couldn't understand. And I go, yeah. And on 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 the on the seventh number, if you mess it up, you gotta start over. (laughs) All these things. But so we're we know that part of of technology and history and, and society, but then we also were around when the internet was born. That's right. So so we have feet in both That's both right. generations, as opposed to like my daughters, they don't know anything different. That's you right. know, and millennials, they don't know a world without this Listen, kind of stuff. So it's a different a different way of looking at things. The internet crashes, we would go back to the Thomas Guide in a hot minute. But they would maybe not know how to deal with that in in coins for the for the phones. You know, you know, remember? Like oh, of course. <laughs> I remember the pager when I was a kid. A pager went oh. to church, and and the, and the pastor said, "Hey, you better get that. It might be God paging." He told him, "My mom, my grandma must be a doctor. He must be a doctor." <laughs> man. Now, what? When is that? So, when is day shift coming out, man? August twelfth. Uh, it drops. We are. Um, I'm super excited. Like all my other director friends that do this is the worst time for you because you don't know. And I was like, Bubba, for me, not knowing is the bliss of not knowing. For me, it's awesome because I feel like I did everything I could to make it as good as I can. I had a great time doing it. I had a great partner in my cast, in my shooting crew, in my produ- yeah. my producers, and Netflix. I'm just super stoked to get it out there and let it let the ship sail and let's see how far it goes. And the thing I also love about what you're doing, man, is like you just made your first feature, but you're still you're still hustling on out there as a second unit and you're still working. You don't stop, man. I saw your IMDB. Man. You're like, no, nah, man, I'm keep you're not like I'm, I'm a director now. I only direct. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm working as a stuntman next week, too. So this is how it goes for me, brother. Just so you know, like I learned all my lessons in life. I didn't go to college. I learned my lessons in life in the dojo and in the army. And my master said something to me when I was 11 years old. He said, if you want to be a fighter, you have to go fight. Fighting is a perishable skill. Directing, in my opinion, for me, is a perishable skill. If you're not out there doing it all the time, you know, it's you're not reactive or proactive. You become reactive. You got to be proactive. You got to be in front of the wave all the time. So I'm constantly, I just, just got back from doing a movie for Warner Brothers called Blue Beetle, did Murder Mystery 2 for uh, Netflix, getting ready to do back in action for Netflix. Like I'm just, I want to keep myself directing action and hopefully. My movie does well, and they give uh, they give this old cowboy another shot at the title, baby. I'm ready. Ring the bell. <laughs> now, bro, I'm going to ask you a few questions I ask all of my guests. What advice would you give a filmmaker trying to break into the business today? Um, believe in yourself and be as good as you can be. Be the best version of yourself. Because when opportunity comes, you might not get another shot at it. It comes when it comes. And you can make your fade in certain ways, but you think like, for my example, it took me 32 years to get a directing job. You know, so I was, when my moment came, I was absolutely ready. I had a script that I loved and was passionate about. I knew what that set was going to smell like before I got there. And this is coming from a dyslexic, colorblind guy that never went to college, you know? So if you get the opportunity, you have to make the most of that opportunity. And don't take anything for granted and learn as much as you can about all the other departments. What did you, what did you learn from your biggest failure? Um, so hmm, in, in making day shift. No, in general, in, in general, general. Yeah. 
Is there a moment that you just like, you just, the ball dropped. You're like, man, I learned a lesson on this one. Yeah. I've taken a bath a few times. You know, it's tough love, especially when you get out of the army, the army prepares you for certain things, but it doesn't necessarily prepare you for what to do when you get out always, especially in, in the late eighties, early nineties. I got out in 1990. So it was hard for me to, cause I didn't know many people. I didn't know anyone in LA except for one or two people. Like I slept on the floor of a karate school for a long time. You know, it was very, like, there was no room for error. Like, if I didn't make money, I was definitely going to be back in the Army. So, you know, but L.A. strangely was, um, you know, a place at the time. And even now, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I love this place. It's a trip, you know. But the weather and the place, I fell in love with it the first time I saw it, you know, back in 1988 while I was driving to Fort Ord, you know, like when I drove through L.A. So it, that's probably the biggest lessons came from, you know, like just learning how to apply the work ethic that I learned in the military and from martial arts in how to monetize that and make make it make be able to survive in the real world. And three of your favorite films of all time. Oh, shit. <laughs> Whatever comes to mind, brother. Whatever. It won't be on your tombstone. Whatever no, comes okay. to mind. Okay, Police Story and Armor of God are tied is action grace. You have to I have to mention Enter the Dragon, oh. Armor of God and Police Story. So the Terminator and Rocky the first Rocky and the first Terminator, because the first Terminator for me was the story was like, I remember, I remember sitting in the theater. I was in, I was in downtown Houston. Yeah. It's probably stoned with my buddies. And we were like, <laughs> remember the first, hang on. Remember the first time when you saw star Wars and when they went to hyperspeed, remember that oh, yeah. first La, Yeah. Flash your mind. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. So that was kind of Terminator for me. And Rocky was such an inspiration as well. You know, um, so I would say it's hard for me to say three, but I would go police story, armor of God, Rocky Terminator. And, um, yeah, any one of those three for me, any, any one of those. And, I, and you like for, for, for entertainment, like with, it doesn't have action, strangely Forrest Gump was such a feel good movie such for a me. Good movie, man. Awesome. Now, awesome. I, I, one last question, man, because you, you mentioned Terminator, you've gotten a chance to work with Jim. I have. Dude, I, shoot, I go to the is, gun range him as well. I go to the gun range with him as well sometimes. He shoots so, so what is it like walking on the set of a Jim Cameron movie for the first time and you're like, dude, that's terminate. Like, like you have to geek out. Do you geek out every once in a while? I mean, at this point, you've worked with so many, but that first time. The first time I walked on the set, prep, we did prep work on the first Avatar. And while we, when I went in at lunch... We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. They were using this new, that, that new technology where it was real time. Genesis, Garrett Warren, my friend was the stunt coordinator. Peter Jackson and Steven Spielberg were there with Jim. So it was like this triple geek out moment where (laughs) like, uh, we, you know, like, so Garrett walked in front of them and I snapped the picture just they were eating and he didn't want to bother him, but he walked in front of them and stopped and I clicked a picture for him. Just like, he just like, so, it up. <laughs> you know, you know, when Jim, James Cameron is coming to work, you can hear the helicopter landing. That's when he shows up for work. That's how he comes no. to work from his place. No. Comes an helicopter. He's a G man. Like for me, that generation <laughs> of filmmakers. You yeah, know, there's nothing they like had it. to make the movies in camera. You know, and then went with the wave to technology. Even Ang Lee is another example that I've done a bunch with Ang Lee. He's another one that's, you know, practical filmmaker that went all the way into technology. All of those guys are, are 
epic. And if we have seen any farther as filmmakers, it's because we stood on the shoulders of giants like those men. Absolutely. No question. JJ, man, it has been an absolute pleasure and honor talking to you and geeking out with you, brother. It is. I hope I hope somebody learns a little bit from our conversation here. And there's a lot of gems in this one, man. But congratulations on your success on your career, on your new movie. And I hope, man, I hope they give you the keys again, brother. I, I really looking forward to see what else you do, man. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you. I want to thank JJ so much for coming on the show and sharing his journey and dropping his knowledge bombs on the drive today. Thank you so, so much, JJ. I recommend that everybody log on to Netflix and watch his new film, Day Shift. Now, if you want to get links to anything we spoke about in this episode, head over to the show notes at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv forward slash 325. Thank you so much for listening, guys. As always, keep on writing no matter what. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Bulletproof Screenwriting Podcast at bulletproofscreenwriting.tv. 